Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This podcast contains discussions of child abuse, sexual repression and sexual abuse, suicide, racism, misogyny, PTSD and PTSD symptoms, and spiritual oppression and abuse, including guilt, shame, and fear. In most episodes, we will be mentioning some of these concepts in a general way without any graphic detail. If any of these topics or other triggering topics will be mentioned in great detail, we will let you know at the beginning of each individual episode, as well as in the show notes for that episode. Welcome back to the Leaving Eden podcast. It is a wonderful day. The sun is out. The sky is blue. The birds are chirping in the trees. And my name is Gabriel Hakoen here with my marvelous co-host. Hi, I'm Sadie Carpenter. Hi, Sadie. Hi. And you're right. It is a beautiful day. Like if I had a, I don't know, if I had an amateur pilot's license, it might be a great day to go for a flight. Yes, of course it would. And if you had an amateur pilot's license and you honestly believed that you were protected by God no matter what you did, I suppose any day would be a great day to go for a flight, even if it were in the middle of a thunderstorm. Well, yes, it would. And if you're the kind of person that believes that God will supernaturally help you land your plane safely, uh, even if you fly straight into a thunderstorm, I wonder what implications that might have for other parts of your life as well. Like, might you come to the conclusion that not only are gravity and the laws of nature not a big deal, but that the laws of the country aren't a very big deal either? 
absolute and pure hubris. But who are we talking about here? Today we are talking about Lester Roloff. He is a man who has an extremely complicated legacy within the IFB. We've been talking about giving him his own episode for a while now. And since we had so much fun talking about the love, romance, and Ponderosa buffets at the Valentine's Banquet last week, uh, I thought maybe it was time to balance all that romance out with the weirdest IFB death story that I'm aware of, which is one of my favorite stories to tell. But before we get into that, it is obligatory that I say that the Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we work hard to bring you new episodes every week. We seek to educate and to inform our listeners about the dangers that the independent fundamental Baptist cult and other fundamentalist cult groups pose to society as a whole. We promote freedom of mind, freedom of thought, and freedom of religion. So, if you like this show, if you want to support this show, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash leaving Eden podcast and join where we will have extended and uncensored episodes. You can recommend this show to your friends, your family, your coworkers, and even your mortal enemies. And if you really like this show and you want to be involved in discussions with other fans and maybe help us decide what goes into future episodes, then you can join our Facebook group. It's called Eden Exodus. You can go to facebook.com slash Eden Exodus and join. But back to the measure at hand, Sadie. Would you like to tell us who is Lester Roloff? Well, I thought I would first describe the man in his own words. Lester Roloff is a man who wanted to help parent-hating, Satan-worshipping, dope-taking, immoral boys and girls. Would you, okay, so would you repeat that? So parent-hating, Satan... Parent-hating, Satan-worshipping, dope-taking, immoral boys and girls. Okay, just let me write that down real quick because I think that's a sick band name. <laughs> I mean, it's a little wrong, but it's, it's a little long, but I agree it has a certain ring to it. Yeah, I mean, like for a punk band, I don't know, maybe abbreviate that to... Maybe <laughs> That not. doesn't really work. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should probably keep workshopping this. Yeah. Um, no, Lester Roloff was a man who wore many hats. He was an evangelist and a traveling preacher. He was a pastor. He started Christian schools. He was a well-known radio preacher. Uh, at some points, he owned and ran his own radio station to broadcast his preaching over. He's probably most famous for several homes that he started for teenagers, uh, teenagers like the ones he described above. He felt like it was his mission to help these teenagers find Jesus. So he sounds like the sort of IFB superhero because, like, you know, being a preacher is the best thing that you can be. Bringing young people to Jesus is the best thing that you can do. And saving the unsaved will... That makes you top tier on God's good list. Lester Roloff stands as a kind of a mythical figure over the IFB movement. The stories about him kind of take on the flavor of stories about, I don't know, Paul Bunyan or Johnny Appleseed. For example, okay, here's the first one. Lester Roloff was a farm boy. So as the story goes, he took his cow with him when he went to college at Baylor so that he could sell the fresh milk and cream to pay for his room and board. What? Wait. Okay. So, what year is this? Uh, I don't know. Like the nineteen thirties. Like, like selling milk. 
Okay, when I was in college, people would sell weed, but Lester Roloff <laughs> is out here selling milk. I mean, it's got to be like somebody comes up and sits next to him in the library like, hey, man, you got any of that half and half? I don't have the money right now, but I'm getting paid next week. Can you hook me up? <laughs> <laughs> maybe because this was – maybe this is Depression era, so people were like getting oh. nutrition from it. I'm not sure. But what I'm more concerned about, though – is where did he keep a cow? I mean, like, he just you... let it graze, right? You know, they have, like, grazing right. on the quad. Sure, but do you know how big cows are? Do Like, have you petted yeah. a cow? Yeah. Like, they're big. I, okay, I love cows. Cows like to get petted on their nose. Most cows do. And I love petting cows. They're, like, the sweetest big animal. I could just imagine that they'd be like, oh, the football team needs to practice. Somebody get Lester. He's got to move <laughs> this cow off of the football <laughs> field. Like, cow. Yeah. No, I mean, like, like, do you sell like, did he mil- like sell milk straight from the teat? Like, did he have a lemonade stand? <laughs> like, this is highly suspect and probably violates many health codes. Like, there is no way that he could pasteurize that. Shit. Like, he's got to like everybody on campus has E. coli or salmonella. Like, this man is a menace to society. Like, call it biological warfare. Like, is this how our great-grandparents lived? Like, he's like Tevya from, like, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, make him Jewish. He's Tevya. I mean, dude, people people got around for thousands of years before pasteurization became a thing. Like, I'm sure it's fine as long as the cow is healthy. I mean, I kind of imagine, like, college students... be grass-fed, eating the football field. (laughs) Well, college students drink a lot of coffee, right? So I was kind of seeing, like, people coming by with their coffee cup to just get some milk in there. Just get a squirt. Yeah. Right out (laughs) the teeth. Ten cents a squirt. I don't know. But, Uh, I mean, I feel like jokes. No, I mean, I think the manure is probably a bigger health hazard. Yeah, you of all people should, like, should be worried because you're not allowed to eat unpasteurized cheese until after the baby comes. Yeah, but this was a seminary in the South in the 1930s. I'm pretty sure the student body was not comprised of people who are able to get pregnant. Yeah, but they're still able to get diarrhea. Yeah, that's not my problem. Okay, I'll tell you what I'm imagining. I'm imagining the Old Town Road music video, but instead of Lil Nas X on a horse, (laughs) it's Lester Roloff on a cow selling milk. In a pink jacket and chaps combo. I'm going to take okay, this great. cow to the Baylor quad. I'm going to sell all my milk for sale. I don't know. I, I can't. <laughs> anyway. I... <laughs> so after so after he took his cow to college, um, Lester Roloff started pastoring different churches within the Southern Baptist denomination. That is some Texas shit, if there ever was one. <laughs> Yeah, and what's really crazy is it doesn't, like, none of these stories tell you what happened to the cow after college. Like, did he just leave it? They probably made it into the stakes. That's what they do with cows. I mean, yeah. No, no, that's not what you do with girl cows. That's what you do with boy cows. I didn't know that. I see. You could tell I'm I'm a city boy. I'm not not a country boy. I don't know. No, I could be totally wrong, but I'm pretty sure if a cow has like given birth to multiple calves and been milked for many years that the meat's not good anymore. Like it's not tender. And I mean, it could, it could totally be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how it goes. And that steaks are made out of boys. Boy cows. You can make it into like bad steak. Yeah. Then so again, this a, was the 1930s. I don't think people cared. With anyway. The depression, it doesn't matter what kind of, like they're not. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, in in any uh, regardless of what happened to the cow, he's from Texas too. That's Dust Bowl. Yeah. So they didn't have grass. Who knows what he was feeding it? (laughs) Man, that's a good question. Yeah. I need clarification on this cow story before I can go on with this episode. (laughs) Raises a lot of questions here, but we need to move on. (laughs) So roll off. So I felt like that was such an appropriate story to lead with because this is such a he is such a wild man. This like sets the the the, the that is specifically why I chose to lead with the cow story. Yeah. So after that happened, Roloff uh, started pastoring different churches within the Southern Baptist denomination. So even before he graduated from Baylor, he had uh, kind of like a benefit like a fill in pastor for several churches. And then finally, he had kind of temporarily settled down at a church in Texas. By the 1940s, he was established as a pastor, and he had also started preaching on the radio. He was a very controversial preacher as far as the radio went, because the the most common theme of his preaching was the evils of alcohol. Although he also really liked to, to harangue about communism, psychology, tobacco, or weirdly for an ifb preacher eating meat so we know that that cow wasn't turned into steaks not by lester anyway but we'll get we'll get to like his weird health food stuff later okay see i find it ironic that he was so hardcore anti-communist when i looked it up his church was called the people's baptist church like i swear if i saw a church called the people's baptist church i would assume that they baptized in the blood of the bourgeoisie and that their cross had Lenin on it instead of Jesus. Okay, I missed that, but you're totally right. They're like, onward, Christian soldiers, with the cross of Jesus marching to war. <laughs> what 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 tune is that? That's the Soviet national anthem. Actually, it's also uh, the tune of the current Russian national anthem, which is weird that they didn't change it but also germany still uses the deutschland deutschland uber alice which seems like a big oversight yeah it's a nice tune the the soviet one. Oh, it's a banger for sure but i think i think that's why it still works but um so is deutschland deutschland uber alice but you can't sing it i mean they only use the third verse now which is like about like love and brotherhood not about you know not about the greatest uh, in the world yeah not about bethany beale's favorite ancestors oh god you had to bring that up again yeah i said i love callbacks way more than you do yeah so i didn't all the time so was this during prohibition that oh about him preaching against alcohol um yeah no this is post prohibition um, and I did. I have found a, a clip of one of his sermons from this kind of 1940s era. So do you want to go ahead and play that? Yeah. Let me play that real idea? quick. Okay. You guys are going to hear uh, a very yelly man, yeah. probably. Yeah. yeah. In the sixth chapter of the book of Genesis and verse three, we find these words. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not always strive with man, for he is flesh. Yet his day shall be 120 years. Now then you go to the seventh verse. The seventh verse. And the Lord said, I'll destroy what? Man, whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing, and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. Did you know 
that everything on this earth has suffered to the extent that man has gone away from God. That includes the wife, the children, the animal creation. Everything suffers when man goes away from God. Now then turn with me, please, to the 8th chapter, the 8th chapter of the book of uh, Genesis and verse 21. And the Lord smelled a sweet savor, and the Lord said in his heart, I will not again curse the ground anymore for man's sake. The ground was cursed for whose sake? Man's sake. And now then, the soil has been raped. It's been uh, taken advantage of. It, we, 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 we just about ruined it, and now then we're trying to live off of poison soil. And America, with every hospital running over, Every insane institution failed, every jailhouse, every penitentiary failed tonight. Why? Man got out of the will of God. So, what do we make of this sermon? So this is, a, I don't know, this seems like a typical sermon of his. He's, he's kind of, he was very focused on ranting against things that he believed were sins. Yeah. So, okay, I'll give you my takeaway of this, because, like, if our listeners remember the first Family of Fundamentalism series where we played the clips of Jack Hiles, this guy to me, when I hear this guy, he feels like a proto-Jack Hiles. Like, this guy seems like Jack Hiles before Jack Hiles was a thing. Like, the cadence, the style, the subject matter of his sermons, which are, like, usually about, like, a very specific sin to avoid and, like, you know, demonize people who are partaking that very, very familiar stuff. I agree. Um, Roloff is part of the lineage of this puritanical view of sin and redemption, which, of course, uh, Hiles is also kind of part of that line. And the same origin to rural Texas. Yes. And um, I'm not sure exactly when they first met, but I know it was uh, the, the latest would be 1950s. Okay. So they did know each other when Hiles was still a preacher in Texas. And so they were contemporaries. Yes. Uh, Roloff, I think, is just a little bit older. And they broke away from the Southern Baptist and joined the IFB movement within a few years of each other as well. Their reasonings for breaking away from the Southern Baptists, or in Hiles' case, the American Baptists, were very similar. They have a lot in common, but Roloff isn't just a pastor. Uh, Roloff advertises and he puts on these huge revival meetings around the area and he would he would travel around texas and do all of these revival meetings like we saw in uh, uh sheffy yes like a more modern version of like sheffy with cars roloff interestingly also had his pilot's license so he expanded outside of texas with his uh, his kind of career of preaching at revival meetings. He became kind of known for being a, a good preacher. Like, Because if you're going to have a revival meeting, you want somebody who's really going to yell and like tear it up and be – because that's both entertainment and it's getting the results that you want of people like getting saved and people uh, becoming preachers and stuff. Yeah, they wouldn't put the Lumineers on Warp Tour. It's, yes. Mm-hmm, sure. <laughs> so Roloff uses his pilot's license. He – buys a private plane uh he uses that to travel to more and more revival meetings outside of texas so he's a he's super mobile and he's becoming very well known for being a a good revivalist he was also really really persistent 
with this radio preaching thing, his controversial views and his like very anti this, anti that way of speaking got him kicked off the air at several different radio stations. Um, and then he would just find a new station uh, and then he eventually bought his own. Yeah. So he wasn't just like a proto Jack Hiles. He was a proto Jerry Falwell or like a proto Billy Graham. But I guess he like also was a proto Jack Hiles because like of his prevent propensity for like bucking the establishment, you know, getting really getting them really riled up. Yes, he was he was Roloff was prolific at keeping a lot of balls in the air at the same time. So as opposed to Hiles, Hiles built himself an empire and delegated tasks to many, many people who worked underneath him. Uh, and then Hiles had a guy for everything. Yeah. Like, you know, I got a guy for that. Roloff is kind of the opposite. Roloff did it all himself. And so he didn't come off like he was trying to build himself a Hiles-like empire. He came off more as somebody who was really fanatical and really a true believer. Yeah. And knowing what I know about Roloff, you know, from the research that that we've done, it's clear to me that he, like, was a true believer. That's the difference, I think, here. Right. And I wanted to go back to the radio thing because this illustrates one major talking point of Roloff's life. In addition to being a a pastor, pilot, hype man, and armchair dietitian, Roloff was also a singer. So on the radio shows, he would, he was kind of a one man show. He just, all he had was like himself and an organist. He was really well known for being all about music. And he was even uh, known for bursting into song in the middle of his own sermons. So this was like, he's like a charismatic kind of guy. Yeah. Like, if you're not used to, th- like, this would seem like somebody who is just, like, off the rails and a bit of a weirdo, but his passion is infectious. His belief is infectious. Definitely. One of his favorite songs to sing was called Living by Faith, and apparently he really took the lyrics of this song to heart. He had this strong belief that God would always provide for him as long as he was doing God's work. So when Roloff got kicked off the air at yet another radio station, he began to pray for God to give him the $300,000 to buy the radio station out from under the people who had just... How much much is $300,000 in today's money? Oh, $300,000 is $2.3 million in 2021 money. $2.3 $2.3 million. Yeah. So he just started to like casually pray for God. Oh, God, I need you to give me $300,000. So today that'd be $2.3 million to buy the radio station out from under the people who kicked him off the air. Wait. So would he like be praying on the radio like as part of his sermon? Yeah. But also just like in life. So it's like a prosperity gospel kind of. Yes, but not like to enrich himself. Just like God will give me what I need for my ministry. Interesting. And so in very, very dramatic fashion, he was able to raise the money with just hours to spare before the sale went down. So I think he had like 90 days to raise the money. And like with a week left, he had 
all but $25,000 and then like the day before he had all but 5,000 and then the morning of he was short $250 and then somebody got the last $250 to him like so he wow. could walk into the room to sign the papers like that so he would tell the story of how God provided this money and it gave him this super dramatic interesting story to tell so this is like these are all donations that came from people it's so unclear where his money came from it, it's so hard to find. I, I think Roloff would say that God provided it and leave it at that. So there aren't clear records. But of, God works through people and people. Yeah. Yeah. There are not clear records of like where this money appeared from. One thing about Roloff having all of these different ministries and all of these different jobs that he all did himself means that he's got a lot of tax shelters. Um, Because he's got a radio station he's got a church he's got a christian school that's attached to the church and then he's also got these reform homes he's got uh one for drug addict men who are in recovery he's got one for women uh grown women he's got several homes for underage girls and at least one home for underage boys so he's got and all of those places collect donations individually so like he could have a lot of money coming in so he's got a lot of assets. Um, so he has. So he has a lot of. Maybe it's not liquid all at once, but he has a lot of places where money can be, you know, taken from one thing to be put into an. Okay, right, that and, makes more sense here. Okay, right. And the concept of God providing him large amounts of money, usually just in the nick of time to make it a very dramatic story, that is a major hallmark throughout his ministry. Yeah. And I mean, I like I know a lot of ministries today, especially the ones that have like big national followings, like you know the televangelists or whatever, the prosperity gospel, uh, that God provides money to enable those who He sees as doing right. That's very popular now, mm-hmm. and most times I see that like that's like a grift. When I I see people doing that, I'm just like, you are a grifter. But this guy. Like, you can see that he believes it. And I mean, I can see how compelling, like, people find this compelling when it's BS and the person obviously doesn't believe it and they're just trying to enrich themselves. But imagine how compelling people find this when the preacher actually believes it. Right. Yeah. And this guy, Lester Roloff, I, I mean, I, I didn't know him, but I can say either he really believed it or he was a hell of a better actor than many of these modern preachers. Yeah, they're just like, please, Lord, provide me with a new airplane and new red bottom Christian Louboutin shoes <laughs> for my lovely wife. Yeah, this guy was not like Hallelujah. with the bleached, the, the like the bleached smile. Uh, what is that? TV preacher that's got like the weird smile. Uh Joel Osteen. Joel Osteen. That's the guy. Yeah. Um, this was not Roloff. Roloff was a lot rougher around the edges. So throughout the 60s, he's running his radio station. He goes into full-time evangelism in the IFB, and he puts many thousands of hours on his pilot's license flying to evangelistic meetings as well. So Roloff is riding, he's riding the same sort of wave of counterculture that Jack Hiles, Jerry Falwell, those guys are riding because, so this is around the same time and those two are really building up their national following. So Roloff's also building up his following. Yes. Roloff is definitely on the rougher, tougher side of this. 
Um, his preaching is very loud, very opinionated, and very evangelistic. It's intense even compared to Jack Hyle's sermons. It's really very intense preaching. But, I mean, you know, like, it's got to be just like you said, like, with how these people are rock stars. Like, with music, everyone's influencing each other, you know, building off of each other's success and building off of each other's influence. With these pastors, they're all listening to each other. They're taking notes, what works, what doesn't, building their styles, building their genre. And then they're applying that to their congregations and applying that to build their nationwide following. Right. And Roloff was more known for traveling than he was for staying still. So I think that's maybe where some of the more extreme aspects of his sermonizing come from. I think so. I think Roloff's death is a big part of why he is now seen as being such a mythical figure. But we will get to that. Being who he was, there was always just another ministry to start. So in the early 1970s, Around the same time that Hiles Anderson is getting off the ground, Roloff started these homes that I have referenced, the ministry that he was best known for. He had worked in the past with homeless men. He had a shelter and he helped uh, men who were in recovery from drugs and alcohol. And which is honestly like that's a nice thing to do. Yeah, Um, that's that's a real ministry. He spun that experience into opening a series of homes for teenagers who were uh, in trouble. And at the time, in like the late 60s, early 70s, this could mean teenagers who were gay and their religious parents wanted them out of the house. Uh, this could mean pregnant teenage moms. This would this could mean teenagers who were into satanic music or the occult. You know, they got caught playing with a Ouija board. Um, teenagers who got caught having sex or smoking weed. Um there are a, a wide variety of reasons that you might end up in a place like this. I mean, I could see that being very successful, too, because like all of these things that teenagers were getting themselves into at the time, it was the first time that that had really been open. So, of course, like conservative parents would think that their kids were seriously in trouble. So kids are smoking pot, they're listening to rock and roll, they're having sex, they're being hippies, they're protesting against the war, they're being gay. You know, if your kid is involved with the counterculture and you don't like it, you can send them to uh, one of Lester Roloff's Christian homes and he's going to bring them back to Jesus. That's the idea. And I think you're getting like very much the point that this could be something that would be a serious, you know, something that would really concern even a non-Christian, non-religious parent. Like your kid is drinking and driving. Like that's a matter for concern. That's a serious problem. Jesus or not. That's a big deal. Um, But if this could also be something that would be no big deal to, to a parent who wasn't this kind of strict Christian, you know, like, or like, you know, today, if your kid's gay or something, like it used to be like, Oh, you got to get them fixed, you know, send them to conversion. I guess conversion therapy still exists and it's a travesty, but right. Um, Now it's like, it's, but back then, this is a whole yeah. different whole different deal and much more common. The other reason that you might end up in a place like this is that homes were also used in deals with judges. So if your teenager was going to be sent to juvie, you could – if it was a first offense or if you got a sympathetic judge or a Christian judge, you could maybe sway the judge to send your kid to this reform home instead of sending them to juvie because these places were – you were actually locked down. It is not a dissimilar experience from being in jail. Um, 
instead of prison uniforms, you have something that looks more like a school uniform and you are forced to participate in religious activities. But at a lot of these roll-off homes, you are just as locked down as if you were in prison. But, you know, I suppose if the focus of these homes was going to be more on rehabilitation rather than punishment. That is the stated intention. This okay. is another place where Roloff does come off as very sincere. Uh, he had testimonies from many graduates of these homes who would go on and on about how much they were helped. Um, in 1971, however, the, this legal battle started and it would not be over for several decades. The largest of these Roloff homes was the Rebecca Home for Girls in Corpus Christi, Texas. Uh, it was a home for under 18 teenage girls. It included a school, and Lester Willoff and his wife also lived on campus at this home. The state of Texas wanted to license this place as a home for teenagers. If they had a license, the, the home would have had to hire licensed social workers. They would have had to have their menus evaluated by the state. They would have had to have the curriculum in their schools evaluated and approved by the state. And of course... The physical discipline that they would know that they were known for wouldn't be allowed. I mean, but that seems reasonable. Like if you're taking care of other people's children, you've got to submit to some reasonable degree of oversight. Unless you're Lester Roloff and you decide that this is a major violation of the separation between church and state. Of course, because Lester Roloff is not the type of man to submit to any authority that isn't the authority of God. Right. So the battle between Roloff and the state of Texas began. Oof. So the story goes that that the child welfare people would show up and hand Roloff a list of new rules that his homes needed to abide by. And then he would hold up his Bible and tell them that he was satisfied with God's rules. Yeah, that tracks. Predictably, this didn't go over too well. So in 1974, Lester Roloff was put in jail for the first time. His jail sentence was supposed to be five days, but he ended up actually only being in jail overnight. So it was just a misdemeanor. I was not able to find what the charge actually was. Um, it, I think it was child endangerment, but I'm not able to prove that from the sources I've found so far. Okay, but like at this point, uh, the authorities don't actually know any of the details of what's going on in the Rebecca home. It's just like that he doesn't want to submit to the authorities, so they're like locking him up for that. You know, it's it's they, like a contempt of, of court sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So they the, the authorities have heard stories about some of the things that go on in there, but they don't have proof. They do have proof that Roloff is not submitting to licensing laws, and that's what they can actually put him in jail for. Uh, there was a tiny group of about 10 former students who were willing to testify against him and tell their stories from the inside. Yeah, but these are the ones who resisted salvations, not the ones who were uh, set straight. Exactly. So Roloff trotted out all the people who said that he helped them and changed their lives. And all of those people stood up for him and presented his case as being a matter of separation of church and state. Um, and then he somehow avoided a longer jail term. What the what we also don't know is we don't know if things were as bad at this point earlier as they eventually became in later years. The, the conclusion of the matter in 1974 is that Roloff is told that he can have a home for teenagers over 16, so he can have 16, 17, and 18-year-olds living there, but he cannot have any residents under 16. So this is like a victory for him. Sort of. So, sort of. He gets to keep his homes open, 
He also gets to claim that God supernaturally made it happen. But also, he continues to accept students under 16. So this is a triple victory for him. Right, because he just go he just does what he wasn't supposed to do anyway. He stops actively Right, because they're not over so yeah. Right. So he stops actively recruiting students under 16. But if they show up or if they, somebody sends them students to him, he refuses to turn them away. But this is also like nobody's like also nobody's really checking on him to make sure that he's following the rules I take it. So like this is like Texas in the 1970s. This is like this is still low key the wild, wild west. Well, the thing is that he has still refused state oversight or state accreditation. So the state welfare workers are not allowed to come onto his property to check without a warrant. Wow. So, like, he's come out of this standoff pretty much without having to give anything up. Not only that, he's also gotten to play the persecution card because he was in jail two different times for one night each time. So now when he goes to preach at Hiles Anderson or when he goes to preach at these other camp meetings or revival meetings around the country, he gets to brag about how he's been persecuted and put in jail for Jesus. Mm. Of course, after this ruling that he can only have girls over 16 in the home, he gets caught having girls under 16 in the home. And the way that he gets caught is just so ridiculously strange and terrible that I just want to read this to you directly from the Roloff Homes website. So this is what his supporters say happened. Okay. Okay. To illustrate the problem, two girls aged 13 and 15 ran away after two warnings for other offenses. They were told they would be spanked for the next violation. They were found four days later in a locked bar. They had spent this time with 10 men and had a woeful story to tell. Roloff kept his word and spanked them. Word got out about the incident, and Roloff was served a summons for child abuse. At the hearing, the girls admitted the offenses and the spankings. The judge declared Roloff could keep them until the trial. Roloff refused until the judge would ask them a question as to where they would like to go, back to Roloff or to some alternate arrangement. Hugging their daddy with great affection, they said they wanted to be with Brother Roloff. Gag. Let me get let me get this story straight. The way that the way then this is the way that they are telling it. So this is the way two, the supporters of him are telling the supporters this. are yes. telling it. So two young teenage girls, ages thirteen and fifteen. So like young teenage girls, like mm-hmm. eighth grade, freshman, sophomore year of high school. That's how young we're talking. Yes, they were who they were living in this home illegally. And they were going to be punished for disobedience or something. So they ran away from the home. And within four days, they were presumably kidnapped, imprisoned, raped, and then found and returned to Roloff, who beat them for running away. And the judge declared that they should go back to Roloff. Yeah. What? That is about what I got out of this, um, except for the part that you missed where Roloff decided to grandstand and have the judge ask them about whether they wanted to go back to him or not. And the girls who presumably had presumably had terrible Stockholm syndrome hugged him and said they wanted to go back with him. I mean, like what was so what was the alternative for them? Just release them back to their parents? 
I would suppose either going back to their birth family or maybe a placement in the foster care system, depending on how they got to the rule of home to begin with. This is deeply upsetting. That's a strange and disturbing story. It really is. But as a result of this incident, the Texas Welfare Department files against Roloff again for contempt and for still being in violation of the rules that require him to be licensed by the Texas State Welfare Board if if he's going to have a home for minors. So they file against him again. So, like, are these charges, like, again, so are these damaging to his reputation or is he really just, like, doubling down on this whole victimhood narrative? I think, honestly, these charges are bolstering his reputation. Bolstering his reputation. Yeah, because not many evangelicals actually get to be imprisoned for Jesus. And around the same time that all this is going down, Roloff is a popular guest speaker in Hiles Anderson Chapel. And of course, he's still doing evangelism around the country. Like around the whole country. Right. He's using his pilot's license. And at this point, he owns two private planes, uh, tiny, tiny little Cessnas, like four seater, you know, like four people in the pilot. Um, Yeah. Planes. And he's using these planes to travel and preach in many different places. Um, the home, some of the people who are on staff at the homes, uh, are airplane mechanics and keep them up, kept for him. Sometimes he'll even take some of the teenagers from, from the homes with him to talk about how much he has helped them and they will sing and provide special music for the services that he preaches at. So he's got like this whole racket. So this is like his whole thing is that he'll like get a bunch of people in a plane he'll get like three or four people in the plane fly to the service speak at the service and they'll sing and everybody will be like oh praise the lord praise uh for acting through your servant lester roloff and reforming these troubled children right so he can kind of use them almost as puppets yeah and then and then you know fly them around for practically free um but so these years you know after 1974 the fight between Roloff and the Texas Welfare Department is really ramping up. Roloff held giant rallies in Texas. He had both Jack Hiles and Bob Jones III speak to the crowds of supporters. Uh, At one point, there was a standoff that's called the Christian Alamo. The Christian Alamo. Christian Alamo. And there's, I sent you a really good article about this that's got a lot of information. And we'll have uh, that. that you, what is that the one put, from the Texas Times? Yes, that's the one that needs to go in the show notes. Yeah. So we'll have that down there. Highly recommend you guys read through it. It's uh, as interesting as it is disturbing. So at the Christian Alamo, Roloff and his supporters link arms around the compound of the Rebecca home apparently for three days, refusing to allow the state welfare people to come onto the property. But at the end of three days, Roloff surrenders and the teenagers that are at the Rebecca home are moved to other homes in other states, uh, like licensed places. And Roloff finds a way to reopen the Rebecca home within like a year or two after this incident because he incorporates it under the church's ownership instead of his own name. Wait, okay, wait, wait, wait. So the state can shut him down and he can just start back up again? He's basically just showing up at like the licensing wearing a fake mustache. <laughs> that like that's insane that he can just be like, "Oh, I'm not Lester Roloff. I'm Lester Roloff LLC." Like, "My name is Mr. Snrub." Yes, yeah. that'll do. 
No, it's kind of is that. Um, Hello, I am Mr. Burns. <laughs> this is another place where I find that the information available. So I, I looked at, I read this story from the perspective of pro Roloff sources and also from the perspective of news sources. And all there is not much dissenting information. Like, all of the info that you can read, no matter where you're reading it from, is pretty much the same. And there are holes in the story, no matter where you read the story. It's certainly odd. I don't know what happened here. I want to know who in the government of the state of Texas did Lester Roloff witness committing murder. I see. That's the only way I can fathom this. I wish I knew. It's just so perplexing how... This went on for so long with so little consequence to him. I mean, it's like when I get blocked on Twitter and then I use an alt account to see what people are saying about me. And it's absolute madness. (laughs) Well, as it turns out, um, Lester Roloff would not live to see the end of this conflict. On November 2nd, 1982, Roloff took three young women from the Jubilee home and it's not clear. Um, some of well, those three young women from the Jubilee home and one other woman, one of those people was his secretary. Some of those people may have been on staff at the Jubilee home or they may have been residents. It's it's really foggy on who exactly. I have their names, but I can't tell you why they were on that plane, if that makes sense. Because they're all private people. Right. Yeah, uh, I can tell you the names of the four people if I wanted to, but yeah. anyway. We respect their privacy, not going to... Well, there were four of them on the plane, and I know that the, the four of those women were singing. They were a singing group. They were singing together. And yeah. that's the overarching reason why they were there. So the five people, Roloff and four women, are on this on this private plane, and they're supposed to be going to Kansas City, Missouri for a revival service. Um, and there was, there was some rough weather that day. Depending on who you ask, there was a storm that should not have been flown into. Uh, or there was a minor storm that an experienced pilot should have been able to handle. Again, it's not clear because so many things about this man's life are not completely clear. But regardless of how bad the weather was or if he should have known, 100 miles into the flight, Roloff's plane went down and everyone on board was killed instantly. So just like that, he's dead. Just like that. However, this man was seriously larger than life. So, in a way, his manner of death took on a bit of a life of its own. So, it's like Buddy Holly, Big Bopper, Richie Valens, Lester Roloff, all legends who died in the plane crash. Yes. And I hope you'll excuse me for kind of venturing into the macabre with this episode, but this is my favorite funny death story. The and story this is, like, yeah. so fascinating to me. It's so bizarre, though. Like, so... He's in the middle of this legal battle. He's preaching all over the country. And then, bam, plane crash. He's dead. Yeah, and I think he was only in his 60s at the time of the plane crash, if I'm not mistaken. So He probably would have lived a long time. He had a great diet, vegetarian and all that. Right. He was super about like – he actually wrote a recipe book, uh, which I don't have time to get into, but I'm going to send it to you. It's really cute in a weird way. Are there any good recipes in there? Have you made anything from it? I haven't made anything from it yet, but there's some stuff that I think you'll be interested in. That should be some content we do. We we do all of the Oh the my god, that's a fantastic idea. That is an amazing idea. Okay. So after Roloff dies, 
things things are things get weird after he dies. Um Jack Hiles is one of the speakers at his funeral in Texas. They had to rent like a, a amphitheater for his funeral. It was apparently huge. And this is not like super unusual for Jack Kyles to fly out to speak at one of his close friends' funerals. What's weird is what happens when Hiles returns from Texas. So Hiles has a chapel service with all the Hiles Anderson students one day. And he's like, okay, everybody go out the back door of the chapel and I want you to go down the hill to the lake. So everybody does. And when they get down there, they find the crumpled wreckage of Roloff's plane that five people died in a few weeks prior. I mean, that's perverse. But I think that like, I mean, the way you describe these IFB preachers, the way that they're all like rock stars, they're larger than life figures. And a guy like Lester Roloff, he is an IFB rock star. He was like a Hendrix or a Cobain or a Buddy Holly or like a John Lennon. And I mean, I've seen memorabilia, you know, artifacts owned by dead rock stars or, you know, auctioned off, put in museums, sold to private collections, what have you. And like, even like even artifacts of their deaths. Yeah, I see where you're coming from. But I always found so the wreckage of the plane stayed on campus at Hiles Anderson for many years. And I always thought it was so creepy. Like as a kid, I was terrified because I thought I felt like I was going to look around the wrong corner inside the plane and see blood stains in there. Because you could, like, the way I remember it, the pilot seat was still mostly intact, and you could kind of sit in the pilot seat. And I just found that so creepy. So I'm going to say it. I was at Ford Theater in Washington, D.C. Uh, when I was in high school. And I got to see a handkerchief with Lincoln's blood stains from the night that he was assassinated. Mm. And I felt like that was something worth seeing. But I really... To be honest with you, I would not be interested in seeing the needle that killed Sid Vicious or the gun that killed Cobain or the wreckage of the plane that Buddy Holly died in. I wouldn't be into that. If the shotgun that Kurt Cobain killed himself with went up for auction, how much do you think it would go for? See, I mean, I don't I don't even know. The only death memorabilia I would really ever want to own would be something from Dead from Per Olin, the singer of Mayhem. I mean, a piece of his skull sold for about three thousand bucks about a year ago, and I would have oh, bought that right. if I had three thousand bucks. That's that like obscure, like Swedish death metal cult thing that you told me about. I mean, I don't think, yeah, yeah I mean, they're not obscure. I think people older than I, us would know. Pretty obscure. No, people older than us would know who they were because they made international news with all the church burning. So it's, do, they're I, just obscure I, to our generation because they haven't been in the news. But regardless of all that, I know that if Dead, like Dead, absolutely like intended to die, and I believe with my whole heart that he would not care if he knew that people were still selling pieces of him, he would probably think it was funny. I don't care. I, I don't know, dude. I, Sorry, like, I just had to bring up Dead because you know I love him. Yeah, I mean, I'd never heard of. I guess I talk about Formula One stuff, and nobody cares about that. Uh, but I, I, I mean, I'd never heard about Mayhem or Dead until you told me about it. But I see your point. Yeah, uh, anyway, that that aside, this Lester Roloff plane thing, uh, it really did freak me out. And I think part of it is 
like part of what makes this weird to me is the idea that the the IFB is huge on purity, right? Purity culture. And a part of that is the idea that bodies are sacred in a very tangible, like a very tangible holiness about a human body. So the idea that possibly, I don't know, somebody's hand or eyeball or something never made it out of the wreckage and was just like chilling under a seat in this plane. Like, what if somebody's hand is still in there? I mean, That they, is not okay with me. That would be wild, though. Because this thing is crumpled like a soda can. You like reach under the seat, find a finger. That is what I was envisioning. So this plane was moved from the yeah. lake area to an enclosed courtyard on Hiles Anderson campus. But both of these places. Like you could go sit in the plane. You could literally go touch it, lean on it. I am 100% sure I've touched it at some point. Um, and like my dad would take me to Hiles Anderson campus when I was a little kid and freaked me out so bad. Um, that is so it, weird, like, dude. The original upholstery is in there. There's like blood soaked seats in there. You just like, you know, they try like to. Like blood stains on the seats? There have to be. I don't, I cannot remember if I saw them or not. Wait, so how is the original upholstery? Like, if it's outside, wouldn't it be like moldy? I don't like know. I think I feel like this whole thing was gross, but this plane is crumpled. Like, like I don't know if you looked up any pictures of it. I did not. It's it's very destroyed. It looks more like like it kind of went through a what's that thing that you know the car smasher thing. But anyway, both of the areas that it was kept in were popular dating areas on Hiles Anderson campus. So literal generations of Hiles Anderson students committed ocular intercourse. Oh, besides- <laughs> look at that. I, I found a picture of it. Oh, man. Did you? It's got, the, it's got blue stripes on it. Yep. The blue kind of like blue, dusty blue seats. Yeah. I can't see the inside, but like. Hang on. Now I got to look it up. Yikes. Yeah. It's like, like you can't, they cannot have gotten all the people out of that. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? I guess. Do you see what I mean? How could they have gotten all the people out of that? There's some and this people is in like a dating there. area. You'd be like, I mean, I don't know. In middle school, when people were really into being emo, like they would go on dates and hang out in the cemetery. Yeah. And like, that's not for me, but a cemetery can be a peaceful place. And I just felt like this plane represented like horrible violence being inflicted on people. They finally I moved mean, the plane. You- Oh, I was going to say, do you remember the music video for Sugar We're Going Down Swinging by... Uh, uh, no, I don't think Fall I know Out the Boy. music video. I know the song. Yeah, but like there was a line of that. There's like, lie in the grass next to the mausoleum. Yeah, they're, they're like I in a cemetery. I hate mausoleums. I am extremely yeah. freaked out by mausoleums. Uh, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> um, I am the unfortunate person who loves like true crime and death content but is also kind of scared of half of it yeah. but anyway they finally moved the plane between my freshman and sophomore year i think at hiles anderson it might have been right before my freshman year but either way i always avoided walking by the spot where it used to be even after it was moved like it's haunted i kind of i i was not into it um i read online that they may have just sold it for the scrap metal value <laughs> Because, like, after Scop did what he did, the college was in financial trouble. So, you're like, they sold it? 
That is the rumor online. I don't know for who sure. Would, who would buy it? No, like scrap metal. They sold it for scrap. For scrap? Which I think is so disrespectful. That's not good. That, I, that's an old, rusty old plane. Like, what's it even like? There was, it's got to be like just corroded. That's, I don't. I don't even know. The bottom line is that it it's no longer at on Hiles Anderson campus, and nobody knows where it is. But I hated the thing, and I thought it was the creepiest thing in the entire world. That is wild. <laughs> That's all I have to say about that plane. Yeah. So okay. So 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 um, in the years since he died, though. So how has Lester Roloff's legacy been represented? Like, has it been preserved? Like, how's he talked about? What I always remember hearing about him. I think he got the legacy he wanted because what you hear about him is that he was a man of faith and that uh, that living by faith motto was really what defined his life and that God helped him prevail over the government, which was trying to tell him what to do. The, the biggest part of his legacy was the homes for teenagers. Several of those stayed open for quite some time after his death. So he was like this towering, like mythical figure. Yeah. But he, like, he wasn't as big as Jack Hiles. Definitely not. Roloff was a secondary figure. So people would do like a laundry list of great preachers. And the first one on the list would be whosoever auditorium you were sitting in, right? So if you were at first at Baptist Church of Hammond, the first person on the list would be either either Hiles or Scop. Um, if you were... Depending on where you were in the country, you know, you might get somebody else at the head of that list. But then Roloff would make it onto the laundry list of people that come after that, like D.L. Moody, Spurgeon, J. Frank Norris, Lee Robertson, Tom Malone, Lester Roloff, Oliver B. Green. And it's like a it's like a a who's who of fundamentalism. Okay, And he would always be on the list. Okay, so that makes the top of the list, but always on the list. So. We're going to take a short break here. We're going to take up the offering real quick, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to really go into – we're going to dig deeper into some of this stuff here because there's some deeply worrying stuff going on here that we really just haven't gotten into yet, but we're going to get into that when we come back. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Sadie. If this is your first time listening to the Leaving Eden podcast, make sure you go back and check out episode one, where we start the whole story. You might also want to check out our cult true crime series, The First Family of Fundamentalism. 
If you like the show, you can support us by joining our Patreon, where we have extended and uncensored episodes available. You can also join in the discussion in our Facebook group, Eden Exodus. Tell a friend, tell a family member, tell your worst enemy. (laughs) The Leaving Eden podcast is a fully independent podcast, and we really do appreciate your support. Now, back to the show. So we are back. We are here. We are talking about Lester Roloff, the big bopper of the IFB. And I want to ask, so what was his impact on your upbringing? I I think Lester Roloff was always kind of a specter hanging over my head, even though he was dead, you know, over 10 years before I was born. I knew growing up what the Roloff homes were. And I knew that if I ever really, really got myself into trouble, that I could get sent to somewhere like that. And I'm not saying that my parents threatened me with this because they certainly did not like explicitly threaten me. Um, But I just, I knew enough to know, like I knew some of what went on in those places. And I knew that was where rebellious children were sent. So as a teenager, even when I did, so we've talked a little bit about like, I didn't want to like leave the church as a whole, but I really wanted to like wear jeans and look normal. Even when I had that desire to do things I wasn't supposed to do, the fear of getting sent to someplace like the Rebecca home was more than enough to make me decide not to do that thing and to quit thinking about even doing that thing. So you were more afraid of getting sent to like the Rebecca home, then you were afraid of getting sent to eternal hellfire. Okay. So I keep trying to explain this to you. (laughs) Once you're saved, it's done. You can never go to hell. So the theological term is like, this is the doctrine of assurance. Um, another term that gets thrown around with this is once saved, always saved. Once you've got Jesus in your heart, you can't get Jesus out of your heart. You can't go to hell. Even if you murder somebody. So, like, I was fearful of other people going to hell, people who didn't have Jesus in their heart. But after a certain age, I really felt like I was definitely saved and it stuck. So I wasn't afraid of going to hell myself. I was afraid of other people going to hell. That can't be right. I mean, that's like most of Protestantism, dude. Like, even Catholics, we don't believe that sinning changes your destination from heaven to hell, except for mortal sins, which are like murder or other like big deal things. Well, then why do they have to like be such hard asses about all of the minor stuff like drinking or wearing pants? Because God doesn't like those things. Like because okay, so God said don't do it. And that should be reason enough for you. Because God sent his son to die for us. How dare you have the gall to not want to please him with every breath for every moment for the rest of your life? Jesus didn't die on the cross for you to just wear clothes that make God literally vomit. I don't know, dude. It seems like the same energy as when your college (laughs) university alumni association, like when they call you up asking for more money, like, like what would I want to give them more money for? Like as soon as I walk across that stage, I am done. They only exist on my CV and on my sweatshirt. I mean, you're 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 not wrong. The idea that's, that's so it, 
And like, I know I probably triggered some people when I said that a minute ago, and I'm sorry if I did, but that's yeah. like the the kind of guilt trip that like it's all guilt trips. That's that's literally it. That's it. That's all of it is just being horribly, horribly guilt tripped. There are times that I was afraid that my salvation didn't take. Um, they will, you will also sometimes occasionally hear somebody say like, if you still have a desire to sin, then you're not really saved. Like if you still feel like you want to sin, then you were probably never saved in the first place. So that can really like with your head a lot. But I knew that I didn't believe that doing a particular sin in particular could send me to hell. But doing a particular sin in particular could send me to a very, very, very scary reform home. So maybe we hinted at this in the first half of the episode, but these reform homes like the Rebecca home, obviously they were known for corporal punishment, but that wasn't anything unusual in the IFB. So what was it that made the prospect of the Rebecca home so scary? So, I mean, I don't even really know where to start. First, I want to make clear the Roloff homes were the Rebecca home in Corpus Christi. And then there's also the Bethesda home in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Um, And then there is another organization called the Hepzibah home or Hepzibah house, which is maybe a tiny bit better known outside the IFB because it was recently featured on Dr. Phil. As far as I know, these institutions are extremely similar. So I would have heard stories about both and been terrified of both. But as far as today, I'm going to try to focus more on things that happened at the Rebecca or Bethesda homes. If I accidentally mix in a Hepzibah house story, I heard about both concurrently, but I'm going to try to keep them straight for our listeners. Okay, so what actually went on in these homes? So these homes had a rigid schedule. It was designed to leave very little free time and instill a sense of strict routine. So you'd have hours of required Bible reading and prayer every day, a very strict uniform code. There would be rules for what order the girls should go through the dining hall line in. Girls would be expected to memorize Bible verses every week to have their beds made a certain way with like, you know, the military corners, nail biting or making eye contact with a boy in church or speaking about a television show or making eye contact between with somebody who had been there less than 30 days. If you had also been there less than 30 days are all forbidden. So stepping out of these rules, even the tiniest bit, even biting your nails would bring an extremely strict punishment. So something small, like if you fail to memorize a Bible verse or you have your shirt untucked or you accidentally make eye contact with a male, that could really bring the hammer down on a resident. I seriously hope that the hammer you're speaking of here is proverbial and not literal. I mean, it's not a literal hammer. It's more of a thick wooden paddle. Uh, Although girls were also beaten with belts, straps, hands, various other implements. Uh, There are many, many documented cases of girls being beaten until they were black and blue. Um, Other girls say that they were whipped with a belt or with a leather strap, leaving welts an inch high on their backs and on the back of their legs. So... We are we are most definitely talking about some rather severe beatings. That's terrible. Yeah, and that was not the worst punishment here by a long shot. Um, oh. Other punishments could be include um, being made to sit the wall. So what that means is you're basically being forced to do wall sits for extended periods of time. 
Okay, but like we had to do that in gym class when I was in elementary school. For like five or six hours? Five or six hours? Yeah. No, for like two minutes if we got out of line. Five oh or six my God. hours. So no, they, they, they would make these girls do it for hours. And if you fell, if your legs gave out, they'd beat you. So you could also, they would force girls to kneel on the concrete floor for long periods. Again, like hours, five hours, six hours kneeling on a concrete floor. Um, sometimes they would make girls kneel and extend their arms and then they would stack Bibles out on their extended arms until they couldn't keep their arms up anymore. And then when they've let the Bibles fall to the floor, they'd beat them again. This is like CIA stress positions. Yeah. What is going on here? I mean, a lot of it is just pretty basic psychological abuse. Like, it's just just a kind of thing that you see in movies when someone is abusing, like, a prisoner of war to try to get government secrets or military secrets or something. Um, At Anchor Boys Home, which is the boys' equivalent of the Rebecca home, boys were forced to do manual labor for long stints, like 10 hours or more without a break. Um, Sometimes they would tie a rope around their waist and tie the rope to the bumper of a truck and drag them through, like, brush in Texas yeah, what? and then make them do manual labor for 10 hours. What? Yeah. So this is the kind of thing that, that was done to children, uh, like teenage to- people at the <sighs> Lester Roloff homes. I mean, this is like, I mean, this is like, you know, in Homeland or 24 when they're torturing a terrorism suspect. Jesus f-ing Christ, dude. So holy f- what on. F- so this is just like, normal life there this is what happened if you so so children were sent to these places because they showed spirit right because they had they showed a desire to do things their own way and so this is what was done to break those children's spirits to break like psychologically break them so it it literally is like like a torture session that's all it is so another punishment that's not uncommon would be um not allowing people to speak for a month uh, the Rebecca home also had solitary confinement cells. And these are especially awful because not even could a girl be locked in there for days, weeks, or occasionally months. But Lester Roloff's sermons would be blasted 24-7. What? Yeah, so it's like being in the hole in jail, but literally worse. Like actual torture. And this had been done in some cases to girls as young as 12 or 13. So you literally can't sleep, and they're playing recordings of Lester Roloff sermons. Yeah, and I and I'm sure you remember. Oh. There's a conversation we had about breaking a child's spirit in the Duggar One episode, and this is the natural ending of that philosophy. It's believed that what happened to these children is that the spirit wasn't properly broken when this person was a toddler, so now they need to be broken at whatever age they are now. And so what that leads to is a lot of very real and very literal torture techniques. It it turns out, this should not be surprising, that Mm. breaking someone psychologically pretty much works the same way, whether you're a soldier or a spy or a pastor trying to get a teenager to do what you want them to do. Okay, so forget – this is – like this is a like that scene from a Clockwork Orange where they say that they're going to rehabilitate Alex, but then they like clamp his eyes open and inject him with all the drugs, and then make him watch all of like the sex and violence and listen to the Beethoven. Like 
You you know the scene I'm talking about, right? No, I actually haven't seen A Clockwork Orange. Um, I just stand by my statement, though. Breaking someone psychologically works pretty much the same whether or not you sprinkle in some Jesus. Yeah, and all jokes aside, like the abuse of these young girls, like this is literal torture. Like they are literally torturing them. And this is this is like the type of treatment that I would expect people to get at the hands of actual terrorists. Yeah, this is not this is not funny. No, I mean, normally you make a lot of jokes and like there's not jokes about this. No, like I like if you hear me laughing about like sometimes people hear me laughing about stuff and that's like not funny. And it's I'm I'm laughing because it's like a, a almost like a nervous response. Like I remember a few weeks ago we had an episode where I was talking about the Holocaust yeah. and I like laughed at the end of hearing some de- like depiction of that. And that wasn't because I was like laughing at what that was like a, a almost like a natural like nervous response, you know? Yeah, like, we're we're there is nothing funny about this. So. We're millennials. <laughs> we tend to laugh at things that are awful. Uh, yeah. But I talked earlier about Lester Roloff either. Either being a true believer or being someone who is a really good actor. And I do have to say that there is at least a chance that he thought that absolutely destroying somebody in this manner was an effective method for bringing them to Jesus. I mean, as somebody who spends a lot of time studying atrocities, this is not the type of thing that you get from somebody who is just like sadistic and self-aggrandizing. Like, this is the type of thing that you get from people if they are true believers. Like, I honestly cannot imagine him doing this if he did not truly believe in it. Not defending him, but that's what I'm saying. No, I I agree because I think that – here's another factor. Okay, here's another factor. I have not yet been able to find an allegation of sexual abuse at Rebecca Holm or by Lester Roloff. And we've looked. And I looked. I did try to find. There are allegations for many similar homes uh, and many similar preachers. I have not seen one against him, which to me, that adds credence to the idea that maybe these people were truly convinced that they were helping. Because I feel like if he was committing these terrible sadistic acts upon he or his staff members under his direction, were committing these terrible sadistic acts on these young women and young men, I think if they were really sadistic, they would be sadistic in other areas. And that doesn't show up. So that leads me to think that maybe they really did think they were helping. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at people who are just opportunistic and just looking to make a buck, like the chances are that there would be some like sexual abuse in there as well, because they would be like, if they didn't mm. value these if they didn't really think that these young people were like valuable like going to turn out okay if they were just abusive and uh exploitative in general if they were just abusive they'd just be abusive this seems like something else maybe Uh, another thing is we can't know for sure how much jack hiles would have known about the actual goings-on but he wholeheartedly supported roloff and i would be curious to find out how much hiles knew about these homes well, Jack Howes himself was an advocate for child abuse because he wrote about it in his child-rearing books. That is true, but Hiles never recommended hitting hard enough to leave a welt or a mark. What was going on at these places was not anything that Hiles ever recommended that I am aware of. No. 
I mean, but like at the end of the day, if you're a guy like Jack Howells, you depend on brainwashed, broken spirited Stockholm syndrome rule followers to fill your church seats. You can't argue with the results that these homes are going to produce. Kids from these homes, um, interestingly, would sometimes end up at Hiles Anderson. Uh, The really sad thing to me is that even if they had lived through years of this kind of torture, these are these kids had learned to actually behave the way they had been taught. And you would think that that would turn out like a perfect Hiles Anderson student, right? That kid's never going to fail room inspection. That kid's never going to fail dress code. They're, they're never going to break the dating rules because they're not even used to being able to make eye contact with the opposite gender. But they were still socially shunned at Hiles Anderson because they were perceived as bad, even though they were able to behave perfectly. There was still just a huge stigma over these people because it was assumed that they had done drugs or had premarital sex or something else terrible to get sent to the roll-off home to begin with. They could have just found that they had a rock song on their iPod. Right. But the living at this kind of place, like, it gave people an attitude that's not – I don't know if you ever knew anybody that that did go to juvie. But living in a, in a roll-off home or someplace similar would give people kind of that edge that, that, mm. that having been in prison would give somebody. And so they didn't fit in at Hiles Anderson. And I always felt so terrible about that because consider these people have been through absolutely horrendous things. And they went to Hiles Anderson to try to commit and like continue in the IFB way. And they still couldn't get a date or make friends at Hiles Anderson because of the stigma. I thought that was so awful. Yeah, you've got like the state of Texas coming down on the Rebecca home trying to get some like oversight in there. Like this isn't an issue of the government butting in. This is an issue. This is like not an issue of freedom of religion. This is an issue of protecting children from literal torture. Well, it seems that former President George W. Bush would disagree. Oh, big surprise there that George W. Bush doesn't have a problem with torture. So the Rebecca home in particular, it's closed now, but it was able to reopen for several years while Bush was the governor of Texas. In 1997, he asked lawmakers to identify laws that prevented faith-based organizations from being free to operate. So attorney David Gibbs III, who will be back, uh, by the way, you probably remember him from the SCOP video. He's the guy who hated his suits. I'm sure his terrible wardrobe was very much in fashion in 1997. Sure. Well, that guy, uh, before he tried to like help First Baptist Church of Hammond wiggle out of the scop problem, he went before the Texas legislature to argue for a bill that allowed places like the Rebecca Home to bypass state licensure and instead be licensed by private Christian licensure boards. So that was the bill that Bush, as the governor of Texas, he suggested this bill be written, and then it passed. So that allowed the Rebecca home to stay open until the bill failed a renewal in 2001. So unless I'm wrong, so that's sort of like how medical licensing works, though, because the AMA isn't like a government-run licensing agency, but you've got to get a license from them to practice medicine in any clinic or hospital you know, for them to hire you. Yes, uh, the difference would be that the AMA is really not known for saying that it's okay to torture your patients. Mm-hmm. 
So as President Bush established the White House Office of Faith-Based and Community Initiatives, and the stated goal of that office is to eliminate unnecessary legislative, regulatory, and other bureaucratic barriers that impede effective faith-based and other community efforts to solve social problems. So this is billed as like a quote-unquote alternative licensing thing. I get you, but like because the whole thing is like the government is too complicated. There's too much red tape. Private industry does it better, more efficient. So you get private agency to license you. Right. The The theory is not the worst thing in the world, but the practice, unfortunately, is. I remember that was common in like the 90s. They're like, oh, the government is wrong. The government, uh, it's all bureaucrats and they it's don't understand like, the way that we live. Yeah. On the surface, the first time you hear it, it kind of makes sense. Like, oh, no, that does but make then sense. Yeah. when you think, when you recognize what actually happens in practice, it no longer makes sense. Because in practice, this leaves the door open for places like Agape Boarding School, which is a IFB. Agape? I thought it was Agape. Oh, dear. But Agape is an IFB institution, which is still open (laughs) um, with similar abusive practices that come from places like the Roloff Homes. Uh, This leaves the door open for places like Reformers Unanimous Homes, which we've mentioned because I have less. I mean, I have less problems with the RU home because ostensibly their residents are adults who chose to go there. But this also leaves the door open for non-Christian institutions like the Provo Canyon School, where Paris Hilton went to school and says that she was horribly abused. So this is not just Christian institutions. This is other parts of what they call the troubled teen industry as well. Yeah. So I remember hearing about that um, from Eric, who's on Preacher Boys. Uh, So by the way, obligatory shout out, if you are interested in learning more about the troubled teen industry eric has kind of made that his whole thing that he talks about so uh, he has a show where he does talk about that a lot it's called preacher boys podcast yeah preacher boys um is also about the ifb it's a very different tack from what we take uh eric does a lot of personal interviews with people who have been through ifb abuse in general but also this kind of reform home um, their stories are so hard to listen to, but Eric has given them a voice and given them a platform, which is so important. Yeah, um, we do appreciate that because that's not work that I want to do. <laughs> yeah, because we want to like we want to be snarky and more talk about like my personal journey. And I'm so glad that Eric is giving survivors a voice. Um, so- yeah, and like I couldn't <laughs> snark on somebody's story when they're just like, yes, and that's when I was sexually abused by this pastor. I can't be like. Right, you can't like, like I I can't do that. That would be terrible. Like we do a totally different like contextual work. So we're very very yeah. thankful for for Eric and Preacher Boys who kind of do the yeah. other the other side of the coin from what we do. Is, is if you want to hear like people's specific stories like you right. know and, go and, go listen to his show. And um, if you want to know what it was like inside a place like this, he's got many interviews that you could check out. Yeah. Um, that's Preacher Boys podcast. Um but so like essentially what you've got is you've got if you allow private agencies to do some of like this regulating process, you're going to end up with a sort of like race to the bottom where there's, there is going to be some agency that is willing to overlook all sorts of abuse in order to get you the credentials that you need to stay open. That's kind of the same thing that we worry about with curriculum, like ACE being allowed to count as an education in the United States. Yeah. Well, but it's the exact same concept. Right. It's the, the issue is that, most of these schools do use ACE. So all of these places that have minors have to have a school. 
so that they can stay open and and most of the schools use ACE. So that's fun. So not only are they torturing kids, but they're torturing them and then using the torture as a way to brainwash them and teach them in music class that Beethoven went deaf because he was punished by God for stealing sheet music. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, boy. Good old ACE. Yeah. But if there is no regulation and people can use ACE or use other curriculums that teach half-truths and leave out important information, that's the question. Should parents be allowed to choose to give their children a religious education, even if that means that the most current scientific information isn't taught, even if that means that history is taught in a heavily slanted way? How can the government regulate that every American child receives the education that they deserve without denying the parents' freedom to teach their kids creationism if that's what they really want to teach their kid? I mean, we have a Department of Education. And the Department of Education sets these standards so that things like like these like can't happen. So the same thing where we have like the Department of Health and Human Services, we have a Department of Corrections, we have a Department of Justice, and all these departments have this like this job of making sure that they literally aren't torturing people. Here's the here okay, so here's a question. Was there any abuse that occurred after George Bush got these homes reopened? I don't know that I have a specific story that I could link to about this. To the best of my knowledge, they were pretty much the same when they reopened as they were originally. Uh, so it would have been about the about the same thing, as far as I can tell. That's terrible. Yeah. I mean, this uh, is this whole thing is just terrible, just, just full of child abuse. Um, I hope I did a good job of kind of explaining why the 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 poor logic behind why this would make sense to somebody to do to a child. Yeah. Um, But yeah, that is the story of Lester Roloff, Psychological Torture Methods, George Bush, and my favorite morbid plane crash story. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, I have a few things that I want to talk about because like, and we mentioned- I'm sure you do. (laughs) Yeah. So we mentioned Jack Hiles a few times in this episode and we brought up how close they were, but I want to- bring up some main differences between Jack Hiles and Lester Roloff because we mentioned that they were we we brought up a few differences between them but I see these two people as very different people so when we talked about Jack Hiles I went into his upbringing and talked about how it seemed to me like he was sort of replicating his own upbringing making clones of himself and his ministry in, in Hiles and Anderson College and that was his M.O. Hiles' upbringing was rough. His family life wasn't good. He found refuge in church. Lester Roloff, on the other hand, what we know about his early life is that he was very sickly as a child. So um, there's this one story. At the age of 18, he was experiencing a bad illness, and he prayed to God, saying that if he let him survive the night, that he would devote his life to being a preacher and to spread the word of the Lord. And Roloff survived, and he devoted his life to being a preacher. Now, understanding these events in the narrative of his history is 
massive implications because we have a man who believes that he has been empowered by God and that his life has been saved by the grace of God and that this life is in service to God. And therefore, God would not allow him to survive to speak untruths to the people. So we get this man who is driven by whatever means are available to him. He will pursue his mission. He will bring a cow to a college town to sell milk to pay for room and board. When he sparks controversy with the content of his sermons, he will never back down on what he says. When the state of Texas wants to regulate his homes, he will fight them tooth and nail every step of the way. He will go to jail for his own convictions. He is so certain that God will protect him and grant him success no matter what, that he will fly his airplane head on into a storm and every time he survives it is because he has been protected by god and he starts to lose common sense he starts to believe that he is infallible and he believes this sadly to his own demise and to the demise of several other innocent people so when we look at jack hiles as a man who is self-aggrandizing we look at him as a narcissist who viewed the pulpit as a means to an end. We see Roloff very differently. Roloff is, I would call him a religious fanatic who viewed himself as being anointed by God and allowed his position to fuel his hubris. So the system of abuse that was created was much more violent than the system that was created by Hiles. But like, does Fanatical motivation rather than narcissistic motivation make him better or worse than Hiles? I don't know. Like, that's the question here. Yeah, but I think maybe a better question would be to ask whether we can even qualify better or worse here. Yeah. I think both of these men, they just kind of were. They just were who they were. And talking about them now or deciding who is better or who is worse doesn't help anyone. Uh, what does help people is recognizing those who they hurt and giving a voice to those people. And of course, what can also help, which is what we try to do, is learning about why people create these systems of control, like deconstructing these systems and how they come into being. Because what we're hoping to do with with our show and with, with doing all this work deconstructing those systems is to hopefully prevent people from going down that road to begin with, to hopefully prevent somebody from becoming the kind of person that would inflict this on someone else and to help save people who might fall into that pattern of allowing themselves to be treated that way. Yeah. And well, I, so I have another story then to tell about Lester Roloff. And this is a story that I read in an article in Texas magazine. Um, that we're going to have linked. So in 1979, Lester Roloff was at the height of his success. He was an in-demand preacher. His radio ministry was extremely popular by the standards of radio ministry, including thousands. Lester Roloff, this man who believes that his decision to serve God has essentially put him above the laws of man. 
he aligns himself with Bill Clemens, the former Secretary of Defense under Richard Nixon, who was running for governor of Texas. So Roloff becomes a very vocal supporter of Clemens, urging his flock to vote for Clemens and personally and publicly taking credit for Clemens' narrow victory, which unseated his opponent. Uh, I don't know about like enough about Texas politics and, and history or whatever to say whether or not Clemens would have been a better governor than Briscoe, who's the guy that he, he beat. Um, but I want to point out that this sort of hubris, this sort of like grandiose self-assuredness can have massive consequences. And when it comes to religion, I mean, we know that often people like people are often in church because they want to follow, because they want direction. And to me, that is terrifying. Not just that one man could potentially sway that many votes, but that one man would believe that it was his God-given right to sway that many votes, whether or not he actually swayed the votes, you know, whether, whether or not he actually was the deciding factor is irrelevant because like he believed that he was, and he believed that it was his right to be. So I remember you telling me that when you were younger, you believed that Jack Hiles was a good man who was corrupted by power before we learned the monster that he truly was and that he, you know, that he'd been for the tenure of his ministry. I see Lester Roloff as a cautionary tale, a tale of a man whose belief in his own power to do good turned him into somebody who believed that he could do no evil. And within like the single-minded focus of his own selfless quest to save humanity, he lost his own humanity as well as his own life. I know I said earlier that there are a lot of good reasons to 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 see Roloff as someone who very plausibly believed that he was actually doing good and that he was actually helping people. And I still think that's true. I, I still think that it's completely plausible that he that he thought he was the good guy here. So for all of his justifications for his extreme abuses, his corporal punishment and what have you. So for all, everything that he did, he was like, I am backing this up with this Bible verse. And so when he does that, he comes out and he says like, oh, this is a freedom of religion issue. And that's common. Yeah, there. I know that there are Bible verses that can easily be interpreted that way. Uh, I do think he was 100% sincere at the very least about thinking that it was a freedom of religion issue. It's still hard for me to justify if he knew that his voice, his radio programs were being used to torture young women. And if he knew that people were being literally tortured in his name. It is strange to me that he could be okay with that and not be a monster. Well, like we said earlier, though, Lester Roloff is cut from the same cloth as the people who gave us blanket training. So it's not a stretch at all for somebody like him to think that the violence, the abuse is going to be good for a child. And the more brutal, the more egregious, the more cruel, the more effective it's going to be in crushing what he sees as antisocial tendencies. Yes, I, I see it's it's not something I feel like I can make a judgment call. I do find it interesting. I feel like you're st almost standing up for Lester Willoff's intentions here. 
I mean, I'm not saying you're wrong. I I do see some of the same evidence of sincerity that you do. But if you recall back when we were first talking about Jack Hiles, I think I saw Hiles as more morally pure than Roloff. And I think that's interesting because at this point, uh, I'm not saying you're you're making a hero out of Roloff or anything, but I think you seem to be speaking about him more positively than you speak about Hiles. I mean, I'm not standing up for him at all, but I mean, there are people throughout history who literally committed genocide because they honestly believed that it was the right thing to do and because it was the thing that they were ordered to do by God. What I like, what I mean to say is, you know, you described him as a sort of mythic figure, like a Paul Bunyan or like a Chuck Norris, somebody who you tell tall tales about, but that the tales like they might be true. I'll tell like he seems like a mythic figure to me, all right. But I'm talking more like like somebody like Icarus in Greek mythology, you know, somebody whose hubris became his own downfall, or even like a Walter White who started with like quote unquote good intentions but ended up committing atrocities. But I'll tell you, I would absolutely see a movie made out of him. Like it wouldn't be the sort of puff piece, like legacy serving film that the IFB would put together like they did with Sheffy. It would be like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie where you would get to see the grotesque figure that he gets to warp into by the end, get somebody really good to play him. Like, uh, I yeah. mean, yeah, I'm with you on that. I feel like the movie could be really, really interesting. Have you seen The Master? No, I haven't. You might like it. It's got Joaquin Phoenix. It's based on Scientology. It's a very good film. Ooh, but I it like was- Scientology content. Yeah, it's I highly recommend that movie. Uh, it's uh, it's written and directed and produced by Paul Thomas Anderson. Um, it's the sort of thing that like I would want to see that kind of film made about Lester Roloff. Okay, okay. So, I'm. Did you see the uh, the Christian Bale movie, like the one where he plays? Is it the? Wait, who does he play? Did he do is- Cheney or did he do somebody else? No, I can't remember. I did. See, I I saw the ads for the Dick Cheney movie. I thought that was going to be very funny. I'd never. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure good. that's the one I'm thinking of. But you know how he can like look like anybody for a role? Because I think like I think yeah. Christian Bale kind of has the the voice to do roll off. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, he yeah, can that, definitely yell. Yeah. Well, just like <laughs> well, like he's got like kind of like he can do like I think he can do the correct voice for it. Yeah. Oh, I mean, he would be good. Anyway, thank you. Like that's that's about all that we've got time for. That's pretty much what we wanted to say about Lester Roloff. Um, uh, we want to thank you guys for listening to this episode of the Leaving Eden podcast. Uh, we are back to doing one episode a week, so you will catch us again next Monday. And uh, if you want to follow us, you can follow us on social media. You can follow us on uh, Facebook and Instagram at Leaving Eden Podcast. On Twitter, it is at Leaving Eden Pod. Uh, if you want to send us an email, maybe a suggestion, something that you want to talk about, some question that you want to ask to us, uh, send us an email at leavingedenpod at gmail.com. And if you want to join our growing community of listeners, you can go to Eden Exodus, which is our Facebook group. And we have very frequent discussions in there that are quite interesting. Sadie, do you want to plug your social media? Yep. You can follow me on Instagram at Sadie Carpenter Music. Or on Twitter at Hell Yes Sadie. And on TikTok, you are and Sadie. On TikTok. 
She is Sadie Carpenter One on TikTok, and also we are leaving Eden Podcast on TikTok. Um, if you want to listen to the song that is playing right now, you can find me on your favorite streaming service. That is G A V R I E L H A C O H E N. Uh, you can find me on social media. Uh, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, it is also G-A-V-R-I-E-L-H-A-C-O-H-E-N. And until next Monday, hope you guys have a nice day. Bye-bye. you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.